Jesus knows us. I mean, he really knows us. And that should be a terrifying thought to us. It also should be a freeing knowledge to us as well that he knows us. I mean, it's not just knowledge like he knows facts about us. He knows, you know, he's looked us up on Wikipedia. He knows our interesting facts and details and what we've done. No, he knows intimate knowledge about us. He knows us down to our souls. I mean, we have this saying is you, you don't know what you don't know. Maybe you don't know that. I don't know. But, but you don't know what you don't know. And, but here's the thing. Jesus knows. Jesus knows everything about you that you don't know. And he wants to reveal it to you. Slowly and surely, he wants to reveal that to you. And he wants to reveal what you don't know about him. And what you don't know about the world. Jesus reveals knowledge to us. He knows us. Psalm 139 kind of hits this hard for us of what he knows about us. Psalm 39, 1 through 6 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's terrifying. And it's freeing. And it's beautiful. I mean, it, Jesus has x-rays of your thoughts, if you can actually x-ray thoughts. He sees right through you and knows exactly who you are and what you're thinking before and after. He knows what you were and he knows what you're going to be. He knows what you said and he knows what you're going to say. He knows what you thought and he knows what you're going to think. He's acquainted with all of your ways, all of your actions, even the ones you do hidden, he's aware of and he's acquainted with. God surrounds us all the time. You and I can't remember our own thoughts. People have to come up to me and say, remember you said in a sermon one time, like, man, no, I don't remember. Right? And there's only a few sermons of my, my own self that I actually remember. So when you say you remember, like, I can't remember that. But God remembers every word that comes out of my mouth. It's terrifying. It's humbling. And it's freeing. Jesus knows everything about us. And he confronts us. And he engages us. And he whittles down in a conversation right down to our greatest sin. Every conversation that Jesus has, Jesus whittles down, right? To the, you just get it throughout the Gospels. He goes right to the heart of the matter with people. And he does it with you and I. He goes down to our deepest sin, our deepest hopelessness, our deepest guilt, our deepest despair, our deepest need. Jesus knows it, and he begins to reveal it to us. This shouldn't be really surprising to us because this is our encounter with Jesus. This is how he, he deals with us. 
And this is how John describes him in his gospel. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he just declares who, what he is. He is the one that goes right after sin. And he begins to take it away. And the way he takes it away, he has to begin to reveal it. The way he takes away your sin is he has to reveal it to you. To free you from it. To speak it. This is the same thing he does for the woman at the well. The woman at the well, and a person he shouldn't be even talking to anyway, Jesus pinpoints her deepest guilt, her deepest shame, her deepest sin. Right? He goes, where's your husband? Oh, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a husband. I, yeah, I know. You had five of them, and now the one you're with now is not even your husband. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but he just goes right after it. He goes after it because he wants to remove the darkness from our sin. And he offers the woman freedom. He offers the woman hope. And he offers the woman purity, redemption, atonement. In John 4, 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And here it is, Jesus right now, beginning to reveal all things about her. She goes on to say in, in verse 29, Come, she tells everyone, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I mean, that, that's the thing that sets her off. Like, this guy knows things that I don't even know. No one else knows. Jesus goes right after sin. This is the God of Psalm 139. His purpose in the Gospel of John is that he's going to reveal sin. And he's going to atone for sin. And he's going to free us from our sin. The next couple of weeks, I'm actually not going to dive into this passage of John. It's just, I read this this week and I said, you know what? I want to, I want to take a little excursus. I want to take a little uh, side trip for a couple of weeks. Onto to this issue that he pinpoints with her, which I know you and I suffer with, that I know you and I have shame with, that you and I, uh, in our culture, sin with, that we deal with this all of the time. I want to talk about marriage and I want to talk about sex. And I want to talk about so we could understand a little bit about her issue and a little bit about our issue and a little bit of how God deals with this, why he created marriage. And why he created sex. And I just want to first say this, I'll say it again, that marriage and sex are a living metaphor. God created them, and he created them as a living metaphor. He created them, has a design for them, and there's a purpose for them, and all of them point to something. Marriage and sex point to something greater than they actually are. And so I want to say that even if you're a single person, you do not have to engage in marriage or sex to understand what they point to. You don't have to do it to actually engage to, into the greater thing and that they actually point to because they are living metaphor given to all people and even as an example here in earth that people see it and understand what it points to. That's what I want to get to. The biblical premise of marriage and sex 
is that all marital and sexual corruption leads to concealing the true knowledge of Christ. All of corruption and our understanding, our incorrect understanding of marriage and sex, conceals the true knowledge of Christ. But the true knowledge of Christ, understanding who he is, being intimate with him, serves to prevent corruption of marriage and our sexuality. They're kind of both one and the same. These two simple and weighty points I get from John Piper and Justin Taylor out of their book, Sex and Supremacy of Christ. It's a great book. I encourage you to get it. Uh, I want to expound on some of their thoughts a little bit. But these two simple and weighty points, which I think are really what the Bible is really telling us through this living metaphor. And the first one is this. Marriage and sex are designed by God as a way to know God in Christ more fully. I have to read that again because that's really a significant point. Marriage and sex are designed, are created, are given by God as a way to know him more. To know God more, particularly in Christ. To know him the most full that we can know him. He's given us this to us. And so, with that understanding, all misuses of marriage and sexuality distort the true image. So if it points to the true image and true to knowledge of deeper knowledge of Christ, marriage and sex, if you distort it, it's going to distort the knowledge of Christ or your knowledge of Christ or other people's knowledge of Christ. And the second point is this, knowing God in Christ more fully is actually designed as a way of guarding and guiding our marriages and our sexuality. It's, it's, it's designed. He gives brammers. I create this in a certain way, and this is what it's created for. And so if you live it out this way, it will actually help guard you if you actually know me fully. It will help guard these. There is a correlation to our proper understanding of knowledge and relationship with God and our inward and outward expression of marriage and sexuality. There's a correlation between the two of knowledge of Christ and our expression of marriage and sexuality. We distort the truth about God and to others in our thoughts and our actions in regard to marriage and in regards to our sexuality. So when we are outside those boundaries, outside the creative purpose of that, we are actually distorting people's understanding of who God is. All of us do it. Own it. Right? All of us do it. We distort that. But our God actually creates it as a living moment for to actually help people and help you and others to know him more fully. People that often fall away from God, their deconversion stories. I don't know if you heard that term before, but deconversion, falling away from God. People that have known God and then actually fall away from God. Almost all of them, all of them, are correlated to an action of sexual impurity. There's usually, if you, you break down the story, there's sexual impurity and their conduct. Now, not everyone, right? I'm not saying it's always a one-to-one, but there's a strong correlation. And because, because the Bible actually correlates these two ideas, adultery, misuse of marriage and sexuality, and idolatry, 
of going after other gods. God puts these two concepts together and these two images together throughout Scripture. I mean, it's heavy-handed by God. This concept of that one correlates to the other. That one's purpose, marriage and sexuality, done in the proper form, actually is a living metaphor that points to something greater, the true knowledge of Christ. And so when you distort it, it distorts that knowledge for you and for others. And so if you're living distorted, it will often, in your decon- it will pull you away from God. And so that's why there's a correlation with people in their deconversion story. Let's go back to the very beginning of why God created these things. Genesis 1.27, right? We're familiar with this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? So God is the creator. God created humans. And then it goes on in Genesis 2.23-24. Then the man said, this, is the, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here's what Genesis 2 is really kind of hammering out in Genesis. God is the creator of all things. God is the creator of male and female, and God is the creator of marriage. This is his institution in which he created for a purpose. And the first thing we learn for the purpose is, is that that Man and the woman become one flesh, and they actually multiply as well, too. It gives them a purpose to multiply. It gives them sex to multiply people. He has a purpose for both things, and they're not taboo. Right? These are things we ought to talk about. These are things that we ought to celebrate, marriage and sex. These are God-created things, living metaphor, shadow joys, Right, when I say shadow joys, is that all joys, all pleasures of the world that God has created, created in a particular design, are actually all shadows of the true joy and which we're really meant to have, which the true joy is in God. God is our true joy, fulfillment of all things. So all things that are enjoyable, that are good, that are pleasurable on earth, are shadow things of a re- the real thing, God. And he gives us all of them for a purpose and to point to him. Sexual passions and the language and images were created by God to point to the promises and the pleasures of God's relationship with his people. Period. Right? So earthly pleasures point to eternal pleasures and the eternal pleasures is actually God. All those things period. Earthly, uh, temporal marriages, temporal sex, point to eternal truth and a reality. God's covenantal marriage with his bride. Intimate relationship with them. Here's what you really need to understand. When I say temporal earthly marriage, right? You are only married for a certain time. You can look at your husband and spouse or a future husband and spouse. Here's what, there is a covenant you make with them. We'll talk about that in a couple more weeks. But here's the thing. It's temporal. When someone dies, or you get a divorce, let's just talk about death, it's over. You're no longer married to them. That's it. Death breaks it. 
You're no longer married. Because it's actually meant to be a temporal metaphor for something else. It's a good thing to be married. But it's a temporal thing. And so, I'll be a little bit careful here. When people talk about, man, well, I get to see my husband and wife in heaven. And listen, they're not going to be your husband and wife. They're not going to be your husband and wife. Maybe you'll get to see them. I don't know. But it's not your marriage anymore. Because that temporal thing points to the eternal thing, which is meant to be forever and ever, an everlasting covenant, which is your marriage to Christ. Christ marries you. He marries all of us because we're one bride, one body, together. That's what all our marriages point to. I can't hammer that enough for you. And all of those things is meant to point us to know who Christ is more. So God gives us as a tool of evangelism to tell people more about his love and who he is. Now, you now know that you and I fail at this quite often in our marriages as good pointers, as good evangelists to him. But he knows that. I want to I hammer this a little bit home. So go ahead and turn to the book of Ezekiel. You'll want to stay there because I'm going to be, I'm going to be there for a bit. So Ezekiel 16, chapter 16. If you've got a phone or got a Bible, uh, pull it out, Ezekiel 16, uh, and you want to stay there because I'm going to go through this passage in detail. Kind of this great metaphor that which God gives us. It's really powerful. Ezekiel 16, I'm going to start with verse 4. And the point is, right, marriage and sex are designed by God as a way to know God in Christ more fully. Ezekiel 16, verse 4. This is, this is God talking to his, his people. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, this is a metaphor God is using, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you, to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. That is a graphic image in which God is saying, my people on the day you were born were the most vulnerable and most abhorred people, and no one in the whole earth cared for you. You were a discarded little girl born and thrown out as soon as you were born. Now we know, as little babies, they need someone to take care of them. And God's given this image like just thrown out, bloody, to die. Graphic imagery. In verse 6, and God says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I say to you in your blood, live. And I say to you in your blood, live. A command of God to bring something that was dead back to life. And I made you flourish like a plant on the feet in the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment, full beauty. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. The point God is saying is like, no one else came to you. I came. I nurtured you. I, I brought life out of you when you were death. This begins to, you begin to understand the imagery here, right? Adam and Eve brought death into the world. We all were born into death. 
And God's saying, look, you were dead, and I brought life to you. I nurtured you. I provided you. I gave you beauty. I gave you everything that you needed. And I provided you and prepared you for my future bride. And verse 8, And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, ready to be married. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off the blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with also with embroidered cloth and showed you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Just a couple things I just want to point out to you here, right? The, the corner of the garment. This, this imagery that God, he puts the corner of the garment, it covers you up, right? We, if you, I want you to think about the garden for a moment, right? The garden, uh, Adam, Eve sinned. They realized they were naked. They tried to clothe themselves. Who ends up clothing them? God does. God says, well, you can't do that, right? <laughs> this is not adequate. And he clothes them. And one of the reasons he clothes them is because clothing is a sign of inheritance. God kicks them out of the land of inheritance, but God closed them and says, hey, you are still mine. And because literally embroidered here, it says embroidered cloth, literally in that ancient Eastern culture, they would actually sew in the inheritance into robes and cloths. And so this is the, the symbol, I embroidered it in. Like, you are mine and you belong to me. And then this, this covering your nakedness, the corner, the corner of my garment, right? You can think about the book of Ruth and Boaz. And where, where Ruth comes down and lays next to uh, Boaz and cover the garment, right? There's a couple ways you can take this, right? It's, it's, a, it's a symbol of saying, hey, I, I'm going to be married to you, right? I, I, expressing intimacy. It could also be explicitly uh, sexual in its nature as well, too. The, the point is to say, hey, I am going to be intimate with you. And then the next thing that God says, I make a vow and I make a covenant. We become married. Those two things are connected together. I cover my garments. We are becoming become married. Right? We're going to have be intimate together. Right? Sexual intimacy is one of those things we talk about, way to be intimate with each other. Right? We actually literally don't have sex with God. I just want you to understand that. I'll say that. I know I don't need to say it, but I'm going to say it just for uh, clarity on that. But it's an expression of intimacy. And God says, I make a vow. I make promises to you that I will spend the rest of your life fulfilling these vows to you. And then also, what does God do? He clothes and he cleanses his bride. He cleanses his bride and makes her pure. Doesn't this sound like what Jesus does at the cross for us? Jesus at the cross actually makes us pure, takes away our sin, and gives us his righteousness. The, race, the relationship between God and people in Ezekiel is described as intimate, tender, in terms of a marriage covenant, and it's solemn. goes on, verse 13. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver, right, this inheritance, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. 
and your renown went forth among the nations of all the people of the earth because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord your God. The beauty of the bride is increased in relationship with God. God is the one that actually gives the beauty. God is, it starts off with, this is the ugly thing, covered in blood. And God, because all the provision, God gives his glorious presence and the beauty of this bride grows. This is God's thing. God provides beauty. And in the, there's imagery of outward physical beauty that's actually describing the inward purity and holiness in which God provides his people. New Testament actually hammers this a little bit more home. It's not the outward beauty, it's the inward beauty in which Jesus is going for with his bride. And here it is, it's also this, God is sanctifying his bride. God is making holy, making pure, making beautiful his bride. This is what God is doing, not what the bride is doing for herself. So you and I do not make ourselves beautiful. God makes us beautiful. This is his work. And then uh, verse 15, I stopped on 14, verse 15. God says, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renowned and lavishing your horns on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Look at this thing about what God, like God says. Like, look at, I gave you all these things, your beauty, and then your beauty, where now everyone knew about your beauty, where now went out the world, and then what do you think? You think, wow, I'm beautiful. Look what I've done. And look at, everyone knows I'm beautiful. You didn't trust in the one who made you beautiful but you trusted in your beauty and in your renown and you became a whore and you went after other husbands, other people. You took some of your garments, verse 16, and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. You took the, the inheritance that I gave you, beautiful garments, and you actually made them shrines to something else. You worshiped Something else. And he goes on, this like has never been or nor ever shall be. Nothing has been done like this, God has said. Nothing. I've never done anything like this for people, gone through this much, and then them to turn their back on me. The bride played the whore and went after others for pleasure. That's really important to understand. The bride went after others for set other ways to have pleasure. And here's what we'll know. There is no pleasure besides God. All the true pleasures in the world are shadows of the pleasure of God. All point to him. This, this immediate connection right here we see what God is doing is, is adultery, sexual misbehavior, and connection with idolatry, going after other gods. Jump to verse 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. It gets worse. It gets worse, right? The wife pays attention to everything else besides her husband. 
And this incredible depravity, like it's nonsensical depravity that God describes here. Right? Normally, now I assume most of you do not know this, but when you go to a prostitute, you have to pay the prostitute. That's how it works. And God is describing a different economy here. It says the prostitute herself is so depraved that it pays John's to come to her. That's how he's describing you and I. That we're so depraved that we don't just whore ourselves out. We actually pay people. It is incredibly deprived and pathetic scenario in which God is describing you and I. And then verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, notice it doesn't call the bride anymore, O prostitute, Hear the word of the Lord. Now you're ready. There comes some judgment, right? Here comes some wrath. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings, right? This sexual exposed in your whorings with your lovers, with all your abominable idols, right? Sexual misconduct, idols, idolatry, idolatry, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. It gets even more, or even the children you have, right? You give up their lives. Therefore, behold, yes, I will gather all your lovers with whom you take pleasure, all those who loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Now, that's an interesting description of God's wrath. What did he say he would do to his bride, the prostitute? I'm going to expose all your sin. I know you tried to hide it. I know you tried to live in darkness. I'm going to expose it to everyone. And I'm going to expose it to you. Now, that's actually not much of a wrath, is it? This is actually God's grace, is the exposing of depravity and sin. This is not retribution. This is love. It goes on in verse uh, 59 through 60. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Now, we'll talk about this more in a couple weeks, but in, in covenants and marriages we make Vows and promises, and we have oaths, and we keep those oaths. Vows and oaths, and oaths are kind of renewing signs that remind us of our promises. We'll talk more about that, but he says, look at you the have you broken the oath? The reality is we know at the beginning of this, there was no promises that the bride had to make. It was God who made all the promises here in this, in this uh, living metaphor. And then verse 60, the oath and breaking the covenant, yet, yet, or a New Testament side, but I will remember my covenant, God says, with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. This is God's grace. I'm going to expose your sin, and I know that you've broken it. I know that you've broken our covenant, but I will remember it. I will be faithful. And more than that, I will make this an everlasting covenant. This will be forever eternal, which is different than when you and I come to the altar and we get married 
we say, until death do we part. God says, forever. Forever. There are natural consequences to our sin, and God lets some of those natural consequences happen, and he actually exposes them because they're exposing is actually unnatural. It's like, I, I need to expose them. I need to free you. I need to liberate you from this, and you need to understand. Yet, he will spare his bride the eternal consequence of breaking the covenant. On almost every covenant in ancient Eastern culture, if you broke the covenant, you, des- you died. That was the consequence for breaking covenants. And God says here, look at, I'm going to spare my bride from the, the, co- the covenant curse. I'm going to spare you. You're not going to die. I'm going to save you. I'm going to spare you from the eternal consequence of this. When we forget the covenant, God will remember. This is the gospel. When we forget the promises that God, the intimate relationship that we have for God, and we go after other gods, and we go after other pleasures, God says, I will remember my promise. I know you have forgotten, but I will remember my promise because it's an everlasting covenant. I mean, this is the model for our marriages. Our marriages, it's until death do us part, but God is forever, and the model of our marriages, it's not dependent upon what our husband or wife do, the promises we make. There's no condition in those vows. There's no conditions. We just make them, and there's no conditions in the vows that God makes for us. He just says, I will do this. I will be faithful. And then he says, I know you're not. And he goes on to explain and expose our unfaithfulness over and over again. I will be faithful. In verse uh, 62, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's a really important word there. Right, it's no longer this, this husband and wife illustration. He's now morphing uh, this metaphor into something profoundable. And, and Lord here is the personal name of God, the covenantal name of God. You will know me intimately that you may remember and be confounded. I like that. You will, you will remember my promises, you will remember who I am, and you will be confounded in your sin. And never open your mouth again because of your shame. I think you will never speak of your shame again. You will never speak of your guilt again. You will never speak of that sin again. Why? When I atone for you. Right here in the Old Testament, God makes this promise to his breath. I will atone for you. For all that you have done, declares the Lord. I will take the penalty. I will take the punishment. And what is the punishment for breaking the covenant? Death. Death. And the faithful spouse says, I will take it. I will make you clean. I will atone for it. And you will never speak of it again. You will move beyond this sin. You will move beyond this shame. The action shifts back to what God will do instead of what his bride has done. 
right? It's gone after a long time of what, how unfaithful the bride has been, and then it's back to, this is what God will do. You will know that I'm your husband. You will know that I am faithful. You will know that I am the promise keeper. I mean, I, I hope you just, you hear it thick here, right? This, this Old Testament is pointed right to the cross, right? This is, this is pointing that Jesus, right, where does he atone for us? He atones for us at the cross. The penalty of all sins. The penalty where justice happens, where covenant breakers get the penalty. And Christ says, I'm taking on your sin. I take the penalty. And more than that, I, I, I pay the penalty and atone for it. And then what does he do at the cross? He also, because he is a righteous and perfect God, he gives us his righteousness. He doesn't change your righteousness right there. He gives you as his because you belong to him. Because you're married to him. His bride, his church. I mean, this is the good news. Did you hear the good news in Ezekiel? This is the good news which the, the New Testament screams out. God provides. God saves. God purifies. God makes holy his bride in which he chooses his bride. He makes holy despite the actions of his bride. Despite the absurd, horrible, depraved actions of his bride. This is what he does. God loves you everlasting. Everlasting. He will atone for your sin. You and I cannot atone for our sin. You cannot pay the price. Unless he intervenes. Unless he does something. And he turns your pursuits and he turns your pleasures which are against him and he puts them back on him. He reveals your sin. And, and here's the good news. He doesn't reveal your sin all at once. Day in and day out, he begins to reveal your depravity slowly and surely. You don't know what you don't know about yourself, but God knows and God loves and God will fix God saves. He gives life to dead things. He justifies, which is new life. He sanctifies a pure life, a holy life. He glorifies, united forever with the bride, with the husband. In light of this living metaphor, in light of this living metaphor explained in Ezekiel that's supposed to be lived out in our life, you begin to understand clearly what Paul says in Ephesians. Now I've just pulled out Ezekiel for you. Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, he uses a simile here to point to the metaphor. Husbands, love your wives as, this is a simile word, as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as God loved his bride. And which I explained to you in the book of Ezekiel and all the Old Testament. Love your bride in that way, as I have loved. The point he's really trying to point to is this marriage that you have is a shadow marriage, a temporal marriage that points to the eternal marriage. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sounds like Ezekiel. That he might sanctify her. Sounds like Ezekiel. Having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word. 
so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, full adornment. Sounds like Ezekiel. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I hope you see that that second half of 25 and 26 and 27, this is actually the simile, this is what God does for us. He knows that husbands cannot do this in full, that we're shadows of this. Period. Only God does this completely. Paul is saying is that human marriages are modeled after God's marriage to his bride. Our marriages are pointers to the true and everlasting marriage. Temporal versus eternal. The metaphor is meant for all people, not just married people. It's meant, for, uh, not, it's meant for single people because it's not saying, God's not saying, you have to participate in this living metaphor to actually participate in the eternal metaphor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that these living temporal metaphors actually point all people to the true one and that you are married, all of us, eternally to God. Not eternally to your husbands and wives. It's just a pointer. What is, marriage is multiplied, why, how? By actually physically giving birth, by carrying children and raising them up. How is, how is the, how does, where is children created in the, in the bride of Christ? In the, in the marriage with the lamb? It's through, created through discipleship. All of you, all of you, as the one bride of Christ, your job is to disciple people. Bring them into an intimate relationship back into the marriage of God. Christ loved her bride, loved his bride, the church. Christ gave himself up. He justified. Christ sanctifies his church, makes her holy through his, the giving of the Holy Spirit day in and day out, revealing our sin and making us holy. This is his work so that he might present you and I without blemish in eternal glory. All, all people can live this out and understand that in our marriages we lay down our lives for each other and we sanctify each other. That's what marriage was talking about. This is your faithfulness. This is what the bride husband does. You lay down your life and you sanctify or you help uh, push each other to be whole, to know more Christ fully. Now, do you have to be married to do that? No. The New Testament makes it quite clear. Everyone, lay down your lives for each other. And in, in Colossians, it actually says, All right, present each other without blemish. This is what Colossians 1.28 says. Present each other. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all ism, that we present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone can participate in the eternal marriage. Not everyone has to participate in temporal marriages. All misuses of our marriage, all misuses of our sexuality. We're going to explain more about uh, sex in a couple weeks, about how that relates to marriage. 
distort the true knowledge of Christ. It actually distorts other people that don't know Christ. If we are not living out the marriage in which God has said how to live out, then we distort the true knowledge and the true marriage in which he's trying to communicate an eternal reality. So in one ways, marriages are our best tools for evangelism and it's our worst tool for evangelism. Next week, we're going to dive into the weighty point number two. Not this week. You thought it was a two-point sermon. It was just a one-point sermon. You have some grace. Uh, so the second point, next week, we're going to dive in. Knowing God in Christ more fully is designed as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality and our marriages. That's the second point. Today, you need to know Jesus knows you, knows everything about you. Yet, Jesus loves you, and he's made an eternal promise to you. He will justify. He has justified. He will sanctify, and he will glorify. This is a love that is not dependent upon you and our actions. It's not a love that you and I deserve. This is a love that comes from the faithful bridegroom who loves you. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you chose us and that you saved us. Despite my heart and my ability to wander, that you are a God that is faithful to his promises, that you never run from truth, but always expose it, that you use this truth to set us free, not to give shame or guilt, that you atone for all our unfaithfulness, that you're creating in us and in me your character, your faithfulness, that you know me, that you love me intimately. Lord, grow us in your love. Grow us in a desire for intimacy with you today and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.